Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Armed with a PhD in astrophysics, Josh Younger hit Wall Street in 2010 as the embers of the global financial crisis were slowly burning out. With a decade of focus on modeling interest rate derivatives and with the perspective gathered through unique fixed income risk events, Josh brings exceptional insights to our discussion. Our conversation aims to uncover the factors that contributed to the near collapse of the treasury market during the chaos that ensued in March of 2020. Characterizing U.S. government bonds as the asset that became toxic to own, Josh helps us understand the manner in which post-GFC regulatory initiatives combined with buy-side incentives to rent balance sheet, left the UST market vulnerable to overwhelming the system's capacity to bear risk. On the back end of our discussion, Josh brings to life the factors that influence the supply and demand for interest rate options and the impact that certain products used by life insurance companies have on long-dated implied volatility. Please enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Josh Younger. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Josh Younger. He is the head of interest rate derivative strategy for the U.S. at J.P. Morgan. Josh, thanks for being a guest today. Thanks for having me. Well, we have so many interesting things that we can talk about here just in your craft of interest rate derivatives and assessing the value of option prices and complex relationships in the fixed income world. You've got a really interesting career path. I'd love for you to start by walking us through how it is you arrived at J.P. Morgan. You've, of course, done a lot of academic work outside of finance as well. So give us a little bit of background on your pathway from an academic standpoint and how that led you to Wall Street. So I was trained as a physicist. So I did an undergrad in astrophysics. I did a PhD in astrophysics. And then I did astrophysics for a living, at least for a little while. And basically, the conclusion that I came to through that process was I liked the corporate environment. I actually kind of took a bit of a corporate approach to academic projects in terms of the timeline and the way they were organized. And so I guess it's kind of the reverse of what a lot of people try to accomplish. But I was trying to get into more of a traditional office environment. I thought it was a good fit to just the way I work and think. And so at the time, the whole data science field, which later consumed all the outflows from physics and math and and other things that was just kind of getting started. And finance was a traditional path where people planted. And I came across really rather randomly the cell side research group, which is where I still am. And that replicated a lot of what I liked about academics, but it also was part of big bank dealer operation and had a lot of the advantages, at least as I perceived it time and still do, of being part of that kind of organization. So I still do research. I still do research in some of the same ways that I used to. My particular field within astrophysics was galaxy collisions. So it's a lot of simulation work. It's not a pencil and paper type of field. And I did some theory on the simulation side and did some observations, just going to look for the things that we were simulating. And that is a very empirical discipline because it's so inherently messy. And markets have a lot of the same features. So in a weird way, I kind of didn't really change the mode of work that much going from one to the other. Obviously, the subject matter changed, but a lot of the ways that you think about defining a project, specifying the question, going about 
doing the work of trying to answer it and gut checking and stress testing all of the conclusions you come to, a lot of that is very similar. I would love to start with some of your assessment of just the evolution of pricing in the rates market. Again, we're in this uh, period where the Fed's now back at zero and many European countries are below that. What's your big picture on that? As you sort of step back and look at just the positioning of central bank policy, how did we get here? What are the kind of driving forces for the setting of interest rates globally at levels that at least many you know, wouldn't have thought could actually clear the market at these prices? What's your big picture on some of these? So very high level, I think there are two big trends to keep an eye on. The first is just like you alluded to, just the extensive intervention of central banks in the process of setting interest rates, not just the overnight rates that they used to set. I mean, monetary policy was always a big driver of interest rate markets and the shape of the yield curve and so forth, but they're really involved throughout the curve now. And that's true across a wide variety of jurisdictions. It's obviously the Fed. They've been actively purchasing bonds, the ECB, the BOJ, the Bank of England, like in Canada and and all over the place, central banks are actively involved in the market. And even when they're not, because we might not remember so easily now, but not that long ago, the Fed was not purchasing assets actively, that they were tapering and then they were done. And then they were letting the balance sheet wind down. Even under those circumstances, there's always the potential for the Fed and other central banks to come back into the market during times of stress. So this idea that the official sector is a backstop at some level and will intervene at some level and under what circumstances, it's just a key part of how we think about the interest rate curves and risks around the pricing. And the second thing is the big mystery, which is why is inflation so low? And why is central banks been unable to generate it despite very accommodative policy? And there's lots of explanations for this, but that is the longer run view against which or the longer run background against which all of this is happening, which is a, a deflationary trend across the world. And that just keeps rates low and term premium negative in lots of different places. So you know, that makes the job a lot harder because on the one hand, you have the decisions of a fairly small number of actors. Central banks or central bank actions are ultimately determined by a handful of key decision makers. It's much easier to predict the behavior of thousands and millions of market participants than it is to predict the behavior of one or two individuals. And the other is this just big unknown, which is what is the long-term path for inflation and trend growth? Why has monetary policy been so unable to accomplish that part of the dual mandate? Well, you make the point that uh, central banks are as involved as ever in markets and it's global, but certainly first and foremost, the Fed has done more than ever in 2020, and it's easy to argue that they had to. I think you've done a a really effective job in explaining the why of the tumult in the treasury market during the big risk-off that came about in March. And it's a fascination for me in particular that the risk-free market almost crashed in a risk-off. I think that's a a story that really needs some, some uncovering So I'd love for you to just kind of walk through, maybe even start with the aftermath of the financial crisis and the regulatory impulse that came about to try to prevent something like that from happening. As I read through some of your work, there is a sense that uh, the setup coming in as a function of the regulatory agenda in the post-crisis period was at least part of the volatility. 
But maybe just walk us through kind of high level as you look through the volatility in the treasury market in March, the various actors, and how is it the case that the treasury market itself almost came undone during this period? Yeah, so when we get to 2008, and there's this whole attempt to to address the problems that generated it, I think two of the big lessons correctly that people learned is one, banks were undercapitalized relative to the risk that they were running, and relative to their imprint on the financial system, which is a slightly different way to think about it, uh, but important. And the second is that they didn't have sufficient liquidity to manage the various draws on their liquidity position. So on the one hand, we need to address the too big to fail problem. And to be very specific, the too big to fail is not just about the size of the institution in risk units. So it's not about the amount of risk the institution takes. It's about it, the various ways in which large financial institutions are interconnected and essential to the proper operation of the system as a whole. So this global systemically important banking concept is that there are several aspects of what we've sort of come in cheek called bigness, where bigness is not just the size of the balance sheet, although that's part of it, but also how interconnected is that institution, how reliant is that institution on short-term wholesale funding, uh, how complex is that institution, and how much cross-jurisdictional exposure does that institution have. And that's all codified into a score, which is one of the regulations that came about. But the more general way that regulators approach this is they wanted to address this broader issue of too big to fail. So that's the one plank. And the second is to make sure that institutions that are systemically important have sufficient liquidity or access to it on short notice to manage potential outflows. And so that's the liquidity leg of the regulations. And that all makes a lot of conceptual sense, except that under certain circumstances, you can run into a situation where those two sets of regulations are in conflict. And that's what happened in March of this year. What happened in March of this year is for reasons that we can get into the nitty gritty, but the bottom line is there was a massive dash for cash, as I think a lot of people called it, but basically the entire economy was facing this very fast moving, very uncertain, very significant shock activity, and there was this urge to just build liquidity where possible in the non-financial sector. And that meant that they needed to draw down on credit lines, they needed to sell assets, they needed to do all kinds of different things, and that's all going to be demands on bank liquidity. And so banks facing these demands on their liquidity had to rely on their stocks of high-quality liquid assets that regulations require. This was precisely the scenario that the regulations envisioned, which is a significant outflow that needs to be met by potential sales of, of very high quality assets. And treasuries, of course, are the highest quality assets that these institutions could hold. They were considered interchangeable with cash in lots of different ways. The problem was, how do you turn a treasury bond into cash? And you do that by selling it, but you don't sell it directly to another end user. And especially if there aren't necessarily other end users, because there's a broader draw, a broader desire to build liquidity as opposed to hold it in term securities. And so you go to your dealer and you say, I'd like to sell this bond, and they're presumably going to be the buyer to the sellers. The problem that creates is most of the flow is intermediated by other banks. And so banks facing liquidity squeeze were unable to effectively monetize their treasuries because those treasury bonds were being sold to other banks, and that implicates the too-big-to-fail regulations. So it's very hard to simultaneously cap the overall size and complexity of the financial system or the banking system specifically and 
rely on securities like treasuries, risk-free assets, as a store of liquidity. And this is one of the ways in which the treasury bonds are not really an investment in this context. They're more collateral for use in sourcing cash on short notice. And this all happens in an environment where you have a broader deleveraging of the financial system. And, and the activity of hedge funds is, is one of the ways in which this started to stress the system, the, the basis trade on wine. But also liquidity operations from central banks and, and corporates, redeeming prime funds, shares, and various other things. So all of this comes together into a bit of a collision because banks cannot lever up to provide the liquidity that they themselves need. And so that's where the breakdown happens. Ultimately, the Fed has to step in because they are, in some sense, an unregulated bank. So you've got two options when there's not enough cash to meet the overall needs of the financial system. One is you can provide it through the bank leverage, and the other is you can simply expand the monetary base. And that's what ultimately the Fed had to resort to. In some sense, this is viewed as a crisis that should have been avoided. I think in another way, this is how the system was set up to function. This was what could have been a credit crisis in the style of 2008 that was transformed through the regulatory structures that were put in place after that event into a liquidity crisis, where you simply didn't have enough cash to meet the overall demand of the economy for liquidity. And the useful thing about a liquidity crisis is it's precisely the scenario that central banks are set up to solve. They are very well equipped to handle a liquidity crisis, and they're very poorly equipped at the end of the day to handle a credit crisis. The Fed obviously did a tremendous amount in March. Uh, I remember the words as needed, which uh, effectively was an uncapped bid for treasuries in an unlimited amount, and it ultimately worked. I'm curious in terms of the there's been a lot of ink spilled on just the role of leveraged players, basis type trades in the setup coming into this, I'm hoping you can just bring that to life for us in terms of the types of RELVAL trades that existed in the market, the motivations for doing them, and then just how what is typically a kind of cash and carry, low yield, uh, low risk, low reward type trade, how does that come undone? What are the factors that uh, create the chaos and you know it ultimately builds on itself? Yeah, so just to be really clear, the, the basis trade that you're referring to, just to spell it out, is to be long uh, treasury securities, usually funded using repo leverage, so using repo markets to borrow funds to buy those securities, sometimes on an overnight basis, sometimes on a term basis. And that's the long position. And then the short position, which hedges most of the risk of that securities position, is a short in futures on those same bonds, either because they are deliverable into the futures contract or because they're very similar to the bonds that are deliverable into that futures contract. And so you really have like a matched position, which is securities in the left hand and a futures contract, which is a commitment by a counterparty to buy those securities from you at some point in the future in the right hand. So it's a very well hedged position. In many cases, it really is limited or no obvious upside at expiry. So the question is, why are people doing these trades? And there's a couple of different flavors of this. The first, which you alluded to, the relative value trades are more about policing the relationship between the securities that are in principle deliverable into futures contracts and the pricing of that contract itself, or, the, or more generally, the pricing of those securities relative to each other. So if I have a bunch of different treasury bonds 
Some have high coupons, some have low coupons. Some were issued a long time ago, some of them were issued more recently. They all have roughly the same maturity. There are certain price relationships that one would expect to hold between those bonds, and when they deviate, if they're cheap, you buy them. If, you're, if they're rich, you sell This has been going on for a very long time. Often futures are utilized as the short position hedge for those types of strategies. The second is a market-making book, which is if you are a bank-affiliated dealer or just a dealer in general, you're the buyer to the seller and the seller to the buyers. So you typically have an inventory. If there's a mismatch between the selling of a security and placing it with an end user at some point in the future, you're running a fairly steady state inventory of securities. And you'll typically buy them and then hedge your first order risk, which is duration, interest rate risk. You'll hedge that with futures. So you're running on a sort of long-term basis, you're running a long securities position, a short futures position. That's a basis trade. And then the last, which is the more recent development, is when these regulations came into place that limited the size of bank balance sheets, among other things. That meant that access to leverage provided by banks was a scarce commodity and needed to be allocated to clients on a, a fairly sort of ad hoc basis. And so it's tempting to think that banks would look at their balance sheet every day, run some model and say, today's optimal allocation of balance sheet is this amount of capacity to this client and this amount of capacity to that client and just refresh on a high frequency basis. That's not really how it works in practice. Usually in practice, you'll make an allocation, let's say a billion dollars of leverage to, to hedge fund A and two billion to hedge fund B, and you'll revisit that allocation, let's say quarterly, and if hedge fund A used half their allocation, well, then they get half of what you originally gave them next quarter. So now they get 500 million. And if hedge fund B fully used their allocation and asks for more, maybe they'll get the 500 million from hedge fund A. On a relatively low frequency basis, you'll allocate balance sheet to clients based on your perception of their needs, subject to some overall budget constraint. So there became value in running positions as a hedge fund which utilized the leverage offered to them, but didn't necessarily take on a lot of risk. So what you wanted to do was use up your allocation, the use it or lose it allocation, with some position that, that was a repo-funded securities position. So let's say you didn't have a strong view, you didn't want to just be levered along the market, you would then sell futures against it to hedge the risk and run a basis position that way along the securities and short the futures, not as a relative value trade necessarily, not as a market-making operation, but really to preserve access to leverage because at some point in the future, you might want it. And so when March came and these relationships started to get stressed, and they were stressed initially by a severe liquidity impairment that you could really trace back to just the fact that rates moved really quickly. So when rates move really quickly, when markets are very volatile, liquidity tends to be worse. In this case, they moved very, very quickly, and liquidity was quite a bit worse. And you know, that created a little bit of a wedge between the futures position and the securities position, because those futures have certain features that are very attractive during times of stress. And normally, if you ran especially that third kind of basis position, the non-economic placeholder position, just preserving access to leverage because you might need it in the future, if you're running a position like that, you might say to yourself, well, if I can just hold this thing, until the futures contract expires, then I have a known payoff. Maybe it's a small loss, maybe it's a small gain, but it's kind of an arbitrage in the sense that, or it's a risk-free position in the sense that I know exactly 
the limited downside or guaranteed small upside that I'm likely to earn. But that presumes you can hold the position until delivery. And, and March just happened to come right at the point where most of the market had rolled their futures position from the March expiry to the June expiry. So maximum time until the contract expired and everyone was starting to work from home, which is a very disruptive process. And it wasn't clear. And those who remembered the market implications of September 11th, which came with it, lots of operational hiccups, there was this risk that even if you had a small, decent loss on the position now that should go away by June, it would be very hard in practice or you might be forced out of the position earlier and realize those losses. And because of the leverage associated with those trades, they're very highly levered, even a small headline loss became a big problem in principle. So rather than wait for things to play out, there was this kind of run on the basis market that was driven primarily by hedge funds that was unwind there. I, I don't think you can say, well, this was the largest draw on liquidity or this was the only thing that mattered. There were many other things going on, but from the perspective of dealers and others, it was such a fast moving feature and so potentially large, especially when you started to get margin increases and things like that. There, there was a perception that there might be a lot more behind every incremental trade because they were all kind of going in the same vicious circle direction. And so like the way that markets priced risk began to reflect this significant uncertainty around ultimately how much intermediation is needed, subject to all the constraints we were talking about before. And, and really, at the end of the day, what it meant was the banking system and the dealer complex was significantly concerned that they just didn't have capacity to intermediate the monetization of the securities that were likely to get sold. And that's where you start looking at much higher transaction costs, very severely impaired liquidity, significant price discrepancies between really fundamentally the same security. If, if you bought a, a bond with a treasury bond, no credit risk, if one has nine and a half years left, one's got nine years, seven months left, they have slightly different coupons, those things should be basically the same yield, and they weren't at the time. And all of this happens in the context of the risk of a broader delever. So the real concern is that this inability to source liquidity leads to sales of other assets. And then you've kicked off the kind of vicious spiral credit crisis that was precisely the concern in 2008, selling otherwise money good assets simply because you need the cash and not because you actually want to sell them. And if you have that kind of set of incentives, you can start selling things at a price that's very far below fair value. You definitely sell that doesn't So that's where the Fed comes in because Fed basically pays sticker price for treasury bonds. They take those bonds out of the market. That the toxic assets in March of this year were not subprime mortgages, they were treasuries. And by taking them out of the market, providing the cash that was needed, expanding the monetary base, and stabilizing market making and intermediation, they basically arrested the cycle before it had a chance to really turn into something much more destructive. Of course, the COVID shutdown and the unique nature of just how quickly this sudden stop occurred, it's hard to argue that people should have been prepared for something as quick as this, whether they're corporates or even regulators you know, overseeing something like the government bond market. The extent and scale of the Fed's intervention, do you think there is some rethink 
as a function of this to sort of evaluate the how did we get here? Again, noting how unprecedented the shutdown was. And of course, that asset markets are going to have to react violently. But just the scale and scope of the Fed's intervention, is there a rethink on just market structure and its role in the setup coming in? Or is it just, we did what we had to do, we're the buyer of last resort, and let's move on? There's a couple of ways to look at this. The first is, even though it's tempting to say, you know, this time is different, but, but no time is really different, but actually really this time is different. Uh, and it was a unique event in a lot of respects. And so we don't want to overgeneralize the lessons to be learned from it. So we don't want to plan under the assumption that once in a hundred year pandemics are going to be much more frequent. They're going to have this kind of market reaction. And I think the work from home element, the operational risk angle is mitigated to a great extent by the fact that we actually did it. And now we know how, and that's important. So I definitely want to avoid the tendency to, again, like overlearn the lessons of what is really a very unique event. The counterpoint to that would be, well, they're all unique. There's something general we can take away from this. And I think there's two lessons here. The first is concerning, and the second is, well, maybe I'll start with the the one that's not concerning. So the part that's not concerning is the post-crisis regulatory rules worked mostly as intended, which is we did not have a major credit crisis. Banks were well-capitalized coming into this. They were well-capitalized coming out. They did have sufficient stocks of high-quality liquid assets, even if the cost of monetizing them became very high to do so in the private market. Ultimately, the Fed was able to monetize them. So they had those treasury bonds to sell to the Fed. And that, in some sense, is a success story. This is the system operating, or this is the regulations operating as they were intended. We, we got out of this, you know, again, translating a credit crisis into a liquidity crisis that the central bank then solved. So that's something we shall be pleased with, I think, at some level. The other question is, why were there so many highly levered positions with relatively limited economic benefit? Like, why was the basis trade there in the first place? Because on the one hand, this is not an example like subprime mortgages were of mispricing risk. You know, having a risk-free asset in the form of a treasury bond and a collateralized commitment to sell it to somebody else at some point in the future, like that does not seem like something where the risk was significantly mispriced. On the credit side, maybe the liquidity risk was somewhat mispriced, but ultimately the moral hazard angle is a little unsatisfying because there really wasn't a position accumulated that was much riskier than people necessarily. I think that that relates to the specific circumstances of this crisis. But why was it there in the first place? And this is where there, I think, are more interesting lessons to be learned because the treasury market has clearly expanded along with the deficit. It's much larger than it was 10 years ago. But one of the implications of too-big-to-fail regulation is that bank-affiliated dealers are limited in nominal terms in terms of how much they can intermediate. Their intermediation capacity is relatively, though not precisely, fixed in notional units, the, the flow that they can accommodate. So as the treasury market grows, there's a greater need for intermediation, and in particular, you have more frequent mismatches between the issuance or secondary market sale of securities and their purchase by end users. And that is what generates inventory. So where is that inventory going to sit? It used to sit, again, with dealers because it was a risk-free asset, and so it had no risk weight and capital requirements. Now it has capital requirements associated with it. It is not cheap to hold treasuries under balance sheet as a bank-affiliated dealer. And when we look at the relative value hedge fund industry and the basis trade, both in the relative value 
sense of active trading and more importantly, in the placeholder sense of just preserving access to leverage, those positions, if you were to see them in isolation and not know whose positions they were, look a lot like a market maker. They are long securities and they are short futures against that position. And maybe their timescales are longer, months, not days, but it looks a lot like a market making book. And so we often talk about shadow banking in the United States, but this is a version of shadow dealing. This is a non-bank de facto dealer community that's serving a lot of the function that dealers tended to, but is not regulated to the same extent that banks are. And so a lot of the post-March, the post-COVID crisis, because obviously the COVID crisis is not over, but post the events of March, a lot of the discussion has revolved around what is the appropriate level of scrutiny to give those types of positions? Like, What are the risks that they introduce? Are they ultimately something we should be concerned about in the future? And if so, what is the right solution that does not give up the gains that we've made on the regulatory side? So what we really want to do is avoid liquidity episodes like the one that we saw in March, but if we were to simply tear up all the crisis rules that limit the capacity of the banking system, then we would be back to 2007, which is not a situation that is palatable to a lot of those making these decisions. So what about the regulations should be rethought? And in particular, what can we do with the market structure that we have to more efficiently transfer and intermediate risk? Because this is only going to become a bigger problem. As the treasury market grows, and it's going to grow rapidly over the next few years, deficits are looking very wide for a while. These types of market-making failures are at risk of becoming more common. And so we need to think about ways to mitigate the impact of those types of events, if not avoid them entirely. In that vein, Randy Quarles' recent commentary spoke to that specifically. And to hear someone who's the leading the supervision side from the Fed to effectively suggest something on the order of the market may just have gotten too big certainly caught my eye. I'm wondering if you have a view on that. It's too big in the context of the long-term holders of those securities. So to some extent, the treasury market has outpaced the patience of investors to put their cash into a 5, 10, 30-year asset. And so when you don't actually have 30 years to wait to get your principal back, you buy things with leverage, and that's repo. So you're basically transforming a security into a cash equivalent. And as the repo market grows, that's indicative of indigestion to some extent. You had these issues back in September where repo markets had issues because there was too much demand for that leverage relative to the supply that could be offered. March was a different and much more severe version of that kind of event. So it feels a little simplistic to just say, well, as the market grows, then it's going to get too big and we're going to have problems. But the key is that it's growing too fast relative to its end users, and that means that you're much more reliant on this kind of quasi-market making the shadow dealing type activity to smooth over mismatches in supply and demand. Well, let's talk about rate vol. We've uh, seen just across the asset classes a bunch of records set this year. New all-time high in the VIX. The oil VIX, OVX, uh, <laughs> made a massive high as uh, front-month futures went negative. That was a blowout event in the aftermath of the March volatility and rate fall too. Just uh, some extraordinary moves, uh, both to the upside and then as the Fed asserts itself back to the downside. As we start 
this portion of our discussion, I'd be curious if you can just lay out the landscape for rate volatility. I've always thought that most of the determinant of implied vol is very simply carry and realized vol. Seems to work reasonably well. But there's a lot of other things as well in terms of products and just various actors at different points in the curve. I know this is a giant question, but maybe you can simplify it for us. If you were to just give us an overview of the rate vol market in terms of the sources of supply and the sources of demand, how do those two kind of competing forces interact with each other? So we always separate it out into the gamma sector and the vega sector. So the gamma sector is is options that expire within a year or less. Oh, by the way, let me just interrupt you. In equity land, gamma is about a two-hour trade. <laughs> well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> the equity side, uh, no, they're very short-dated, but uh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, no, no, no worries. We have a slightly longer horizon, I'd say, but you know, we call it gamma because the P&L associated with those positions is much more about what volatility is realized relative to the implied, and that just drives the profit and loss. So you're much more sensitive to daily moves. The longer dated stuff, the Vega sector, just has a lot less convexity. It has a lot less sensitivity to local day-to-day movements. And so that's much more driven by supply and demand of the optionality itself. So we always kind of separate those intuitively in, in our heads. But even in the gamma sector, you obviously have organic sources of supply and demand. If we rewind to 20 years ago, the GSE, Fannie, and Freddie were a very common source of demand. And the reason why they were a source of demand is because their business model was to buy mortgages. And mortgages obviously have this prepayment option where you can refinance or pay down your mortgage with no fee. So there's an embedded option there that the borrower owns. And so Fannie and Freddie and owning the mortgages were selling these options to borrowers. So they would attempt to buy back something that replicated that option and interest rates are the right asset class in which to do that. And they would hedge the underlying duration of the investment as well. And there would be a little bit left, which is the mortgaginess of the mortgage, the fact that that prepayment option is not perfectly economically exercisable, that it's not actually an option on interest rates, but an option on mortgage rates, which are slightly different from underlying interest rates and is somewhat difficult to model. And so there'd be this little residual, the option adjusted spread. And if you buy the mortgage, hedge the vol risk, hedge the duration risk, and you're left with the option adjusted spread and you take enough leverage, that's a very attractive carry trade. So because their retained portfolios grew so much through 2005, 2006, they were just a big source of demand for options. So the growth of the mortgage market drives the growth of the interest rate options market. And because that option adjusted spread is there, in principle, Fannie and Freddie and others doing this kind of trading were willing to pay up a little bit for the option-based protection because the carry from the mortgage was that much more attractive. So they're going to pay enough that it tended to make sense to sell them the option. If you were to be systematically selling them options and you were only exposed to the p associated with that short options position, if you were facilitating their mortgage trading that way, you tended to make good risk-adjusted returns. And that makes sense theoretically because if the pricing wasn't sufficient to generate the other side of the trade, that he would have no options to buy because no one would sell them options. So that persists for a while. Then comes 2008. Demand from the GSEs, from Fannie and Freddie, goes down quite a bit just because their retained portfolios go down quite a bit. And the broader option-adjusted spread trade 
gets a lot smaller. And that means the, in principle, you should expect the interest rate options market to get smaller, but that generally doesn't happen. It, it basically transforms what was previously a structural transfer and transformation of risk into something that's much more of a two-sided market where active investors, asset managers, hedge funds, and others are buying and selling options to each other, and it creates what resembles a lot of other options markets where there's not this one-sided structural flow. So equity options are probably something similar to that. But what's interesting is that vault still trades with a premium. So like you mentioned, Terry's a big driver of this. Systematically selling options every day over the past 10 years has been a very good trade. And short-dated options, one month or so to expire. Why that should be a very good trade is a little mysterious. I think we could tell the story when the GSEs are quite active in buying options. Now, there's not really an obvious narrative that accounts for a persistent richness of options because in anything approaching an efficient market, that premium should go away if sales are very common. But it has generally been the case that volatility risk premium, the the propensity of systematic sales to make good risk-adjusted returns, has been consistent for quite a while, and that's up to and through the various less significant but still important crises and volatility events of the past 10 to 15 years. And in terms of the modern day, the 2020 version of supply and demand, so it seems like from a risk premium standpoint, and we see this in other asset classes as well, where, of course, on short vol trades, you can get nicked up and more than nicked up in risk events, of course. But over time, that risk premium can be profitable to collect if you're properly sizing and you stay in the trade. From a demand for optionality standpoint, how would you characterize that? Is that changed over the years? Are these tactical trades? How do uh, sovereigns interact with the market? Give us a flavor on that side of things. So on the short-dated option side, it's pretty tactical at the end of the day, these days. I think what's interesting for the gamma market is the experience of earlier this year is great evidence for the fact that you can't always see big macro events coming. But the question is, how resilient is the market that they're running into? You know, how, how much can uh, market making and intermediation liquidity provision, how much can these blunt the impact or exacerbate the impact of events that are in principle unforeseeable? or at least not foreseeable with consistency. And so what we learned in March is that the microstructure of interest rate markets is fairly brittle and that the increased reliance on high-frequency trading, which tends not to do very well when volatility is high, means that the optical depth of the market is quite high until some event happens. And as volatility picks up, the ability of market makers to provide liquidity goes down significantly. So you end up in these vicious spirals. And when I think back on the events in the past, 10, 15 years, in some sense, the most instructive was October 15, 2014. So taking out of this the more macro-driven volatility events, on October 15th, I don't recall what precisely happened that morning, and frankly, I remember being at a meeting while it happened because it only lasted 20 minutes, but you had this massive declining 10-year treasury yields, and, and then they came right back within minutes or an hour or so. And the fact that the market microstructure could break down that way is indicative of a fairly brittle condition. And that means when you have events like March, where you have a truly significant macro event hitting the rates market, among others, its ability to absorb and blunt the impact is much less. In some sense, I think this past March, the breakdown of microstructure was an accelerant 
for volatility and all of the disruption that came later. So we went from 20, 25 years ago, a very resilient set of market microstructure, but you know, very predictable underlying flows and options that set their clearing level. And now to understand options pricing, I think you really have to understand the way that markets function and intermediate the transfers of risk and the vulnerabilities that, that introduces. So to go back to this short fall trade, why is it profitable to sell optionality? One explanation, which is very difficult to validate but makes some intuitive sense, is that in the context of very brittle market microstructure, the pricing of jump risk has to increase. And so that means all options trade with a premium because of this potential for something to come out of nowhere and cause a significant disruption and lead to very large changes in interest rates, even if they revert fairly quickly after that. And so if you're consistently pricing in significant jump risk, then options are all more expensive. And if those events happen at a lower frequency than the market anticipates, then you end up being paid to sell that risk. And that's a version of what we're probably seeing over time. That said, in the thick of it, back in March, it certainly didn't feel like the market was overpricing jump risk. But over time, uh, it tends to. In equities, as I mentioned, uh, there is tends to be a shorter dated focus in terms of trading. But there are different segmentations in terms of the vol universe. And on a longer dated basis, there's a a universe of products in the structured world that are complicated. They're sometimes very sponsored by retail activity. They tend to be more European and Asian focused in terms of the dealing desks that create these products. And there's a lot of vol and correlation risk in these products. We were talking about some of the those types of trades in the rate side. I was hoping you could bring that class of trades to life for us where there's either Vega supply or demand coming from insurance companies. It's a pretty complex segment of the market, but uh, I was hoping you could give us some insights in terms of how it works and how vol surfaces are impacted by those trades. Yeah, so this is one of the, I was thinking back in the events of the past 10 years. The other that I would point to was actually also in 2014, which was summer. Actually, the regulations were passed in June, but the first Formosa bonds in Taiwan printed in August of that year, possibly one or two in July. But it was really late summer when they came to market. And, and what's interesting there is the volatility associated with that flow and its implications for the dollar rates fault surface are significant and completely unconnected to things that you would usually associate with volatility risk. So what we were just talking about with market microstructure, it's very intuitive that the pricing of options and implied volatility should have something to do with how resilient markets are to an imbalance of flows and how much we would expect prices to adjust if that balance of flows shifts. That's what we think of when we think of liquidity. But why are we talking about insurance companies and specifically Taiwanese insurance companies in the context of pricing long-dated volatility risk in U.S. interest rates? It seems like a very tenuous connection like at best. And what's interesting there is it kind of draws back to geopolitics and cross-border capital flows. So one of the things that's easily pointed out about Taiwan is that they run a very large current account surplus. And in principle, a very large current account surplus brings in a lot of U.S. dollars and should adjust exchange rates to compensate. But when an economy is export-driven, there's a tendency to try to control that exchange rate in order to facilitate exports and avoid too much appreciation of local currency because 
if you're selling widgets and you're getting dollars for those widgets and you want to turn those dollars into local currencies, you sell U.S. dollars, buy, in this case, Taiwan dollars, then the cost of those widgets goes up and now you're less competitive and U.S. dollar-based buyers are going to go buy their widgets from somebody else. So if you can use capital controls and currency intervention to control the exchange rate, you can maintain your export-driven growth. And this has been true in many developing countries, not just Taiwan, but China very famously has a very large FX reserve accumulation, and that's mostly the result of current account surpluses that have accumulated over the years. And Taiwan still runs these very large current account surpluses, uh, something 10 plus percent of GDP, I think the widest in the world. But not all of those dollars end up at the central bank, which is very unusual. Actually, most of the time, those dollars end up in an FX reserve account held by the central bank. In Taiwan, most of them have ended up in the life insurance industry. So over the past five to seven years, the FX reserve balance in Taiwan hasn't moved much, and life insurance companies have double, tripled their holdings of U.S. dollar assets. And this will come back to volatility in a second. The question is why? Like, how did they incentivize that kind of investment, that kind of purchasing of, of investment products from life insurance companies? And they do it by offering a higher guaranteed rate than things like bank deposits and other things. So there's an economic incentive in Taiwan, at least there was, to uh, take out a life insurance policy as opposed to put your money in a bank deposit or other onshore investment. The problem is that those guaranteed rates are now far too high relative to local returns from even things like commercial real estate. And Taiwanese life insurance companies have resorted not only to investments abroad, but what we generically call yield enhancement products, which I think is probably what you would call those structured notes in the equity world which are investments, in this case, fixed income investments, where you incorporate uh, somewhat complicated features to enhance the yield, and they can enhance the yield because it's functionally selling options. And in this case, the vast majority of what they buy are callable bonds. So bonds for which the issuer has the right to redeem that note at par, in many cases on an annual basis for 30 years. And so because the investor in that fixed income security is taking call risk, the risk if their money is, they think they're getting 30 years of interest income and they might only end up getting five, they need to earn a higher rate of return, which is a reasonable thing. Um, they're selling the option to call the bond, and that means they should earn additional carry for being short that option. But more intuitively, because they're taking additional risk, they should receive additional compensation. The thing is, when you do that type of trade, typically banks are the issuers of those bonds, and they really don't want to be in a lot of these callable fixed rate liabilities. Insurance companies want fixed rate investments. Banks want floating rate investments. And so what the, what the bank issuers tend to do is hedge out this optionality and duration risk and transform through derivatives those liabilities into typical floating rate stuff that tends to match their investments. So floating rate liabilities, floating rate assets. That process of transformation results in the issuer, the bank issuer, taking the option that they've purchased the option to call that they purchased from the insurance company and selling it to somebody else. And that's typically someone on the quote-unquote buy side. So it could be a hedge fund, could be an asset manager, could be a domestic insurance company, but ultimately that optionality doesn't stay with the issuer. That call option, it gets replicated and transformed and put into the broader market. So in that sense, it is supply of options, and supply of options is supply of volatility. And what it's meant over the years, as that position has gotten larger and larger, 
And as these companies, insurance companies have grown larger and larger, it's done a couple of things. What's most obvious is that if we look at the U.S. dollar interest rate options market, two related things are true. The first is you can trade relatively liquid U.S. dollar rates options all the way up to 10, 20, 30-year expiries. So I can do a 20-year option on 10-year rates, for example, at a very reasonable transaction cost. That's very unusual in other markets. If we go to the FX market, which is famously complex, and you can trade all kinds of very messy, exotic payoffs in short-dated things. If I try to just buy a 10-year call on dollar-yen, that's a very difficult transaction to execute. It's very straightforward in interest rates. That arises from the fact that these call bonds have options all the way out 30 years. So those things make their way into the market, they get retraded, and you can transact them at fairly low cost. What it also means is that whereas in other markets, longer data protection tends to be more expensive, U.S. interest rate market is actually the opposite. So longer data protection, those 10-year options, 20-year options, 30-year options, they tend to trade at a lower implied volatility than shorter dated things. And this is at times so extreme that if you were to buy like a 20-year option on 10-year rates, for example, and hold it for a year, its implied volatility would increase just by virtue of the fact that it was it aged, it slid up the curve. Like a nine-year option on 10-year rates is a higher, or a 19-year option on 10-year rates is a higher implied volatility than a 20-year option on 10-year rates. That's a positive profit of P&L event. You, you make money because your long optionality implied volatility is going up. You lose on time decay, as with all options, but actually the slide is worth more. So in a weird way, you can be paid to buy options if they are sufficiently long dated in U.S. interest rates. And that's a very unusual setup in other markets. It really reflects the extent to which this flow out of Taiwan specifically has supplied so much volatility risk that it has significantly distorted the interest rate options market in U.S. dollar rates. That is um, a very powerful feature. I think the roll down in equities has been a bear for folks to fight year after year after year. You need look no further than the VXX over time, which you know really simply just rolls VIX futures, but into a very traditional contango shape and has that natural bleed. And that that's potentially very advantageous, I can imagine, just in terms of implementing long dated bets and, as you say, almost being paid to hold them. As we finish up the conversation, I've got two questions. One is just as you review the volatility from the March episode, were there any trades or prices that you really just had to double check and look at again because they were so shocking in terms of the magnitude of a dislocation in volatility or a market clearing price that you just couldn't really even believe because it was so outside of the boundary. So that's just kind of reviewing March. And then as you look at current prices in terms of the vol surfaces, does anything now really stand out to you? Perhaps you've given us one in this excellent review of Formosa bonds, but that's how I would love to end this excellent conversation. Your insights have been fantastic, Josh. But um, one, just give us a sense, uh, again, looking back to March, and then as you evaluate vol surfaces now, does anything strike you as particularly interesting or advantageous? Yeah, I think in March, the way that volatility markets responded made sense. The moves were large enough. And frankly, the change to the macro outlook was large enough. And the uncertainties around it, one-sided and large enough, that it made sense that options would be very expensive. So I was very much not surprised to see 
benchmark short dated options on say 10 year rates trading at, at very, very elevated levels. So that wasn't surprising, I think. I was surprised by two things. The first, on linear markets, but, but one is, we talked about before the cash futures basis, the, the deviations in pricing between futures contracts and the bonds that are most likely to be delivered into them was really striking. I mean, it, it persisted for days. And that's striking because there are very few, but there's no such thing as a free lunch or whatever, but there's, there's rarely, there is in fact such thing as a, a very cheap lunch, and that's what this was. So it was as close to an arbitrage opportunity as markets will really allow in practice. And the fact that it was not offset by the opposing investment it really indicated a significant breakdown in markets and a very strong behavioral issue, which is, I think there's a tendency to look at, when we go back to March, we're just going to probably in many cases, like accounting wise, total up the size of flows and say, well, this was larger than that, and this was bigger than that, and this happened faster, and therefore this matters more than the other one. But, but I think the behavior elements of what was going on at the time, which drove a lot of the pricing decisions that dealers were making, were dominant for a bunch of those days and, and led to these very significant deviations. Like that, you could make the, almost a point by buying a security and selling this feature against it and just delivering into that features contract for a fully collateralized position is fairly mind-blowing. Even though the, the actual amount is fairly small, that you can make a risk-free profit like that is very striking. And over a few months. And at times, actually, those returns were higher than taking credit risk for the same period of time. So there was a period where doing these basis trades was a higher return than buying bank CP, which seems totally bizarre. The second thing was the extent to which the commercial paper markets broke down and the extent to which LIBOR became completely unmoored because bank capital was pretty strong going into this. There was never really any significant concern about uh, bank having significant credit risk, significant risk of failure. And that's a very strong contrast to the last time LIBOR OIS blew out in, in 2008 to a comparable extent. And it really, on the one hand, banks were really having significant stability issues at the time. And on the other, the facilities that were put in place in 2008 were in principle on the shelf in 2020. And so there should have been a sense that the Fed would not allow this to really get out of control. And, and ultimately they didn't, but not before LIBOR and, and other short-term credit benchmarks really dislocated from those three rates in a way that we hadn't seen since the true credit crisis. So, so those were really striking. So do we see any of that now? I don't think we see a ton. We really settled into a regime where the volatility in all sorts of things, not just interest rates, but the differentials between interest rates and uh, spreads, for example, spreads versus swaps and live expectations and other things, and in FX markets, and in really a whole range of repo pricing, like all of these other little canaries in the coal mine or other indicators of overall market stress are relatively benign and very low and stable. And so I think it's been striking that we've been able to weather the incremental stresses in the past few months and the most recent couple of weeks is, is certainly not least among them with just pretty limited impact. Like the Fed intervention has been effective and was effective then and it has continued to be effective. And so you know, markets are very well stabilized for the moment. That naturally raises the question, well, what are we missing? I think what's really kind of interesting about thinking back to March is coming out of 2008, 
there's a big focus on credit risk pricing, and we don't want to end up creating a bunch of toxic assets again where the credit risk is totally mispriced and all these models about credit tranching and uh, I never want to go to work Coppola again and all these other things. Like we need to fix all these problems with price and credit risk because we can't be in a situation where we think something is triple A again and it's not. And it turned out that the epicenter of the next crisis was the total opposite, was the risk-free market, was U.S. sovereign credit risk or U.S. sovereign debt, which you don't know how much you're going to be able to buy with it, but at a minimum you can be almost entirely certain you'll get your $100 back at the maturity of the bond. It's just what can you do with those dollars is a different question, but you'll definitely get your $100. So I think that sense of stability, that sense of success should be concerning in a lot of ways, but the fact that there's nothing on the horizon that, that obviously points to issues is, I guess, the most surprising thing about the current environment. Excellent insights. And I was just thinking on a going forward basis amidst all of this, one of the sectors or asset classes that's uh, really not exhibited much volatility is inflation itself. You can draw a pretty tight band on realized core PCE over the last, I'd say, five or seven years, some ups, some downs, but pretty tight. And if we think of that as an impetus for moving nominal rates, certainly hasn't done a lot. So it should be really interesting to see how things evolve, especially as governments try to clean up this pandemic from a fiscal response standpoint and run huge deficits. But Josh, this has been an excellent conversation. I've certainly learned a ton and really appreciate you taking the time to be a guest with us today on the Alpha Exchange. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, Your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.